the gig economy. We know what that means. Outsourcing jobs. We know what that means. Working remotely. We know what that means. You put it all together. What do we have? I don't know, a recipe for disasters for workers, maybe great profits for companies. Well, you know, nothing is ever that black and white. I'd like to argue that we have an opportunity, and this is an opportunity for you and your company to separate yourselves from your competition. I'm John Pryle, and welcome to the Georgian Impact Podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Mary Gray, a fellow at the E.J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University, and she's a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research. Mary studies how technology transforms people's lives and is a leading expert in the emerging field of AI and ethics, particularly researching methods at the intersection of computer and social sciences. Mary co-authored Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. And if you're growing your machine learning and AI investments, Mary's got some thoughts on the bad and the good behind what type of workers and workforce you might be needing so you can proudly talk to your customers about the company you strive to be. Mary, welcome. I'd like to start by asking you about what's the biggest change with workers? I mean, we do have a history of task-oriented workers traditionally working in factories. What's different today? Yeah, thank you, John. So the biggest difference, I'd argue, is that we can now accelerate how many projects and tasks can be distributed around the world. So the biggest difference when we're thinking about piecework that was critical to the growth of the industrialization and industrial revolution and and textiles and across factories was that you always had this bit that needed to be done by people because the technology wasn't quite there. The difference today is that the human in the loop is performing something that arguably technically is beyond the capacity of the technology. The technology we're dealing with today is artificial intelligence But at the end of the day, the value is keeping a person in the loop. It's not necessarily waiting for the automation to replace them. In some cases, we're we're building out, replacing them. But now, more often than not, it's companies that are taking advantage of having a person performing the discrete moment of judgment or creativity or insight that is distinctly human And that you're not giving it to one person, you're giving it to myriad people around the world to take a weighted response often. So it's a really different mechanism that's that's quite distinct from this history. It has continuity, has connection to that past, but it's it's an entirely different thing to orient our economy. But you mentioned piecework, and I think that's interesting. There's two elements to that. So forget the factory and the people working nine to five with cars coming out of assembly line. I'm going to go back to the Lower East Side where most of the garments in the world were made, in the United States, were made in this one 10 block area, and everybody did piecework in these tenements, and somebody brought physical materials to them. So we have no physical materials. We have more intelligence being applied and probably more distribution. Is is that a fair characterization of this type of worker that you're talking about? I think so, but with some elements that weren't part of that early history. We're looking at a world in which anything, anything that can be at least in part sourced, scheduled, managed, shipped, and billed through an application programming interface in the internet is up for grabs. So there's a benefit then, as opposed to if if 100 people are making 
300 shirts and all they could be different in quality. In this particular case, I could have 100 people doing the same thing and get more. So there, there's great benefit to distribution and scale. Now, you use the term ghost work. And I, I my sense is, and this will be my interpretation, is that because they're far away and not thought of, and because we're aggregating and scaling all of this input, we sort of forget about the workers a little bit. Is, the, is that part of where you're going with this? Yeah, and actually, our my co-author Siddharth Surti and I came up with that term as a provocation. To we're not really describing a particular kind of work. These aren't niche jobs. We're describing a reorientation, arguably a dismantlement of full-time employment, and particularly within information economies, and seeing the taskification of work, turning projects, knowledge work, into individuated projects and tasks. And in that world, the, the more we erase or hide the value of a person in that moment of data management and handling, that's when this can, this can fall into a world of ghost work. It's, these are not inherently bad jobs. They're not inherently good or bad. It's that we haven't collectively as a society come up with a way that we're going to value human participation in this reorientation, the work that is not in one location. It's not for a single employer. It's not popping out a product. It is genuinely valuing something that's, again, it's distinctly human, a moment of insight. Sometimes that it might be several moments of insight, but at the end of the day, it's asking for judgment. It's asking for for creativity. And that means that you need and want many people to take a look at what you're asking them to consider and evaluating what's aggregate the value of what they have to offer. And so I don't want to go down the, the too, too deep down the path of negativity. This is not the task rabbit worker who's willing to wake up at 3 a.m. and stand online at Apple so that I, they could buy me the next iPhone. We would argue there's a direct connection between how do we value someone who is an incredibly an incredibly important part of delivering a service. And I love that you point out the example of TaskRabbit. In that case, it is absolutely in part sourced, managed, scheduled, shipped, and billed through an application programming interface in the internet. And economically, how do we value that person who's been called to complete a task? It's a very specific task that's online to offline and see their value within that moment of service delivery. So there's two, I can almost see two axes here, an x-axis and a y-axis, and one is repeatability and one is you know, ind individuality and then scale. Mm -hmm. So the not many people are going to hire somebody to wait online at I shouldn't say that, but I, I don't, still a relatively <laughs> small number are going to get people waiting for the iPhones right. versus a bazillion, I, I'm getting very technical now, Uber drivers versus a bazillion Facebook curators looking for, for objectionable material. So there, there's the difference. And as we move up that particular axis, and obviously that also takes us up the scale axis, we now have different types of impact to the workers. Yes. Um, and if they're thought of as ghosts, then you begin to think less about them as people versus if you're looking at all of the do people working on sewing clothing in the, in the, in a tenement building or sewing shirts in the shirtwaist factory, you can look at them as a group of people. 
it's is it is is it hard? Is it just human nature to sort of forget them? I'm I'm going back to the way you and your partner thought about this as ghost work. Yeah, I think it can be easier to forget them because of the speed of the transaction. I think it can be easier to forget them if part of what is sold to us is the magic of software or the magic of AI. So the thing to track in in this historical moment of the use of contract labor, the use of contingent labor to fill what we call the paradox of automation's last mile, to fill the gap between what a machine can do and what's distinctly a human's capacity, that what's what's really shrinking is our ability as consumers of that service to see the effort, to see the value of a person stepping into the maw between what something computation can accomplish and what something only a human can do. So I'd like to talk about this automation's last mile a bit. I'll give you a couple examples come to mind. One, I'm I'm super great with AI making people better at what they do. Uh, I love the concept of a doctor working with me and then the doctor might turn to a screen and say, based on all the data, there's a 50% chance it might be this, a 20% chance, and there's still judgment from the doctor. So the, there's tech helping that. Yes. Um, describe for me more about this last mile and, and what, what you, you know, go deeper a little on that, please. Yeah. So, you know, let's, let's stick with healthcare, that we can see applications of artificial intelligence that could be incredibly beneficial to both the patient and the clinician who's who, who wants more information aggregated for them in the moment to help evaluate what's the best I can do to intervene and support this patient. We can all picture that. The things that get murky are, and I'll use a very explicit claim, claims that somehow the ability to have a have AI effectively look at a cyst or a, a, a dot on your skin and evaluate it quickly and work. That's strictly machine learning at, at work and not recognizing how much human energy went into looking at structuring the data of many, many examples of blemishes on the skin and skin cancer and evaluating margins of, of those kinds of marks. People are doing that annotation, doing the data work to be able to come up with accurate diagnostics. And what we know is the technical challenge of constantly figuring out, okay, low-hanging fruit, here is a kind of image that is really clearly skin cancer. Move it up a notch. I'm going to start evaluating more complicated diseases, diseases that are less common, diseases that have far much more variation. Those are places where we know we're going to continue to need humans in the loop doing that data analysis that then then can assist the clinician. But there's never a moment at which it's just the clinician now working with automation delivering a service to a patient, that there's a, there's a full stack of human participation and creativity going into improving AI to be able to deliver those diagnostics. So, so there's, yeah, there's two pieces to that. One is the labeling. And obviously yeah. we, we and, and I think you've been, there's a lot of focus on what that means and how to get that labeling right. But there's also, and this is a, and I'm not sure this is a focus of the book, but I'm going to throw it out because it's so important to our audience, is making sure the data coming in that drives this is not 
biased. Exactly. And I think this is where computer science and engineering is literally just coming to grips with realizing the limits of training data and having to look at their training data, what they're using to train AI, and knowing that that when you don't start with a diverse and inclusive training data set, you end up overfitting a model, which means you can't serve patients who look like anything other than what was in the training data. That will persist as a problem to solve within healthcare. It's very solvable. It means constantly bringing more people, more samples into your training data. But that also means constantly updating our models and requires human insight to be able to do that annotation. Every time we nail it with a really limited, you know, fairly homogenous training data set, we realize, oh, we want to be able to apply it to far more people, to far more contexts. And that is really the most important element here is to think about how contextual how much context, location, the bodies in the room matter to the kinds of problems we're often trying to solve with artificial intelligence. And as long as context matters, as long as language matters, as long as cultural specificity matters, think localization, as long as localization is key to your business impact, we will always need more eyes on a particular problem to make sure it's as diverse and inclusive as possible. It's, it's really not about getting the bias out. It's literally about accepting that bias is always part of what we produce when we produce training data. Right. Now, it's not that necessarily where we're going with all this is a bad thing at all. People used to work in call centers nine to five, boiler rooms, and now they could be working at home taking calls from nine to five. So your concern is not the nature of work is changing. Your concern on how we approach this work. Is that fair? Everything we've built to support working people was built around a model that assumed a nine to five shift job in a factory. In terms of our social safety net, we actually never built out a social safety net for the professions because we imagined everybody who has a college degree, who's part of the learned societies of doctors, lawyers, educators, clergy would never, ever need a a real social safety net because they were buffered by what was unique about their creativity. Well, guess what? When we orient to a project task-based world, There's tons within the creative world that's also routine that can be modeled as a computational process. So, for example, in legal services, there is a lot of legal service work, paralegal work that can be automated. I can start searching for terms. I can start looking for um, certain sets of markers. So I don't need a paralegal or a lawyer, you know, a first year to be going through that material But just as every technological innovation has done, that means you're opening up possibilities for other kinds of work to to come to the fore, other markets to organize. And so the challenge here is that we built our social safety net around working people with the idea that the people who need it most are in, they're on the, the factory floor. We haven't rebuilt our social safety net rethinking, how do you protect people if they're not on one single work site, they work for many employers, 
many employers a record. And in many ways, their value is not what they individually bring to the table. It is that they are contributing as part of an aggregated group of people to a particular project or task. You mentioned social safety net, and it's it's obviously going to change. There won't be necessarily unemployment insurance with people in a gig economy world. So what do you mean and what do you see the future of a social safety net and what should companies and employees be advocating for? Yeah, so by the end of the chapter on the double bottom line, we realized as hard as these companies are fighting to set a bar and set a standard and in many ways bring the value proposition they get in a long-term investment in creating sustainability for their workers, that there's limits to what one company can do. And I think if we look at the bigger picture, if we look at the history of employment, it really took business interests, private sector, the workers themselves advocating for their needs and government to step in and build the social safety net that made textile mills safe. So, and it made working habitable. You know, that's where our weekend comes from. It's not because businesses decided that it was a boon to give workers the weekend off. That's so my, you know, I think arguably to rebuild the, the, to rebuild the social safety net is to recognize that this is going to be rebuilding something that has to have all the stakeholders at the table. It's bringing government to the table, bringing private sector and public sector interests and workers' needs to rethink what does unemployment mean in a task-based world? What does social, um, what does the office of health and human safety mean in a task-based world. So let me leave you with a little nugget. By the end of my field work, what really struck me was how many workers have created home offices for this work that that is a public health nightmare waiting to happen. <laughs> the desperate need for making sure in the in the interest of public health and safety that we're thinking about these new sites of work as places that also need protections so that the workers can come back and, and work another day. So all of, of what we take for granted as the social contract we have between employment and, and workers, I believe that that needs to be rethought. Wow. So let's talk about, let's put my CEO hat on a bit, and you talk about the double bottom line, uh, fiscal gains, as well as a positive social impact. I think that's exactly where you're getting to. So talk to me about some companies that may have done that well from what, you, what your research has yielded. Yeah. So Sid and I studied four different platforms to be stand-ins for the range of task-based work that's out there and really different approaches, different business models for how to organize this work. And two of the companies that we studied uh, one is Lead Genius. It's a social entrepreneur uh, startup that its premise was we're not going to sell you that the software is the magic. It's really the people. And they oriented their processes around team-based approaches that really took advantage of the fact that harnessing people's collaboration was going to be the best way to generate sales leads. So they start with the kind of mishmash of unstructured data you can get when you scrape the web. And they're offering a really smart business-to-business -business opportunity, which is, I will give you the best sales leads. The way they do that is source it to a group of people who effectively fan out across the web and 
figure out what are the best leads and they're taking they're taking a weighted response from their team members to say here's who we think are are the best set so that's that's one good example i think of what does it look like to have a business oriented around this what makes it the double bottom line is that they are interested in growing that business both so that they can serve as many different sales approaches and needs and environments as possible because selling air conditioners is very different than you know selling even copy paper. So realizing different companies have different needs. So building out their capacity to serve many different businesses and also recognizing that to do that, they have to have a sustainable worker pool. They treat their workers for the value that they are as a commons. It's it's literally a group of people who may come and go. Their value isn't in being retained as a full-time employee. It is literally in saying, we're going to let you set your schedule. We're going to give you a list of tasks. What kinds of tasks and projects do you want to sign up for? Recognizing that if I am an aficionado when it comes to a particular business need, I'm going to do a better job if I'm interested in selling sports equipment versus selling technology. Odds are pretty good you're going to get more out of me as a worker. So we need to recognize different skills do different pieces, and not everyone. It's it's when you think about the old-fashioned manufacturing tops on bottoms, everybody was replaceable. This is not the case. You want to actually yeah. learn more about skills and. You had mentioned earlier healthcare, but it's really much, much beyond that. This is an issue of managing projects and giving them flexibility and scheduling and managing your macro level company, knowing that your diverse, disparate, very scattered workforce can support you, but you got to get there. Has anybody figured out how to manage all that yet? I think they're coming pretty close considering and another company we studied called Amara that does captioning and translation work for video specifically, which is technically an incredibly hard problem. So picture a scenario where you want to have a multilingual conference event and have have it live streamed and be able to have linguists be able to provide, you know, UN level quality translation and captioning so that people can equally participate. That's the kind of business solution that you can only get by mixing people in the loop and the effectiveness and efficiency, the quickness you can get from a computational process so that they can, as a team, be able to look at material, translate it, simultaneously and collectively be able to mix and match, like here's the best translation and doing that in real time, you know, being able to do that without much lag is an incredibly valuable value proposition. There's no way to do that with a full-time staffing because to build out the language capacity alone, you would have to have so many people that are, are effectively going to be idle. And the, what we're all, all grappling with is how do we make sure somebody's going to be available tomorrow when I need Spanish and, instead of Portuguese? Right. And so I've got a list of 50 
And tomorrow at 10 p.m., I need this and I'll send out with some notice a request that this is needed and you'll get people that way. This is, I think, the thing that everybody's missing that I, I believe that the research we did, because of the way we did it, we were doing qualitative research mixed with quantitative measurement of these labor markets, of these work environments. And we were doing really detailed field work and interviews with the people doing the work that we could see there's a real Pareto distribution of participation. So the magic, the, the, what, what allows these markets to really thrive are conditions that equip the platform companies like Lead Genius and Amara to put out an open call. Because here's what you get when you get an open call. You get this core group of people, we call them always on, who are deeply committed for, for many reasons, but they have a deep commitment to turning this into effectively a full-time income stream. Importantly, that core group of 20% or so, they're, they are doing the lion's share of work in those environments. Just as importantly, there's a deep bench of a good 35% of people we called regulars who are coming and going. And they've picked really precise hours and projects and interests that you can rely on them. And the thing that makes this functional for them is precisely that this isn't what they do all, all the time. They, they don't make it always on. And then the long tail, most of the people adding value here are the people who can create a sense of abundance that you have a market that could pick up any project, any moment. It's a long tail of experimentalists. It's folks who come in, do one or two projects. They bring incredible value to everybody in this equation because it means at any moment, I literally, as a consumer or a business, can open up an application, go to that platform company, and find somebody to meet my need. So in this particular case, I have my always-ons, I have my regulars, I have a long tail. Exactly. So for, for a CEO, then, it makes an awful lot of sense to... Focus on the benefits to your company, recognizing what this workforce looks like, recognizing the technology that's required to pull this out. You end up with happier workers with some good work-life balance. They have chosen the burden of work they want. You as the CEO have the burden and responsibility to all your workers and to your company, and you end up with a win-win for all. So I, I think we're on a great, a great path here. Very interesting. I mean, the, the platforms that were really knocking it out of the park were the ones who very consciously, intentionally prioritized three needs that, that cut across the board for all workers. It was controlling their time, controlling their choice and projects, and controlling their collaborations. The companies that try and fix the hours, the companies that try to limit what kinds of projects you can choose from or deprioritize, making that even possible for workers, and the companies that just literally say, I don't want workers talking with each other, that kills the quality of what you have because these workers need to, to connect. And they do anyway. That was one of the biggest findings in our book was for every case, workers move off platform so nobody can see. They go to what is their water cooler and they connect and they collaborate for really the deep social need we all have to connect with humans when we're working. Wow. A sea change is coming. Everybody better get a hold of it, recognizing who you need in your office, worrying about some macro level strategy pieces, recognizing how technology changes what's required as you do training data, as we get to more and more ML and AI solutions. I think we're on a great journey. Mary Gray, thanks so much. What a pleasure talking with you today. My pleasure. Thank you, John. 